HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is Katie Kiefer speaking. It's another Monday and it's time for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. That's right. Food Industry Insights, except we won't be talking about that today. We're going to be talking about rivers and salmon. My guest is Monty Schmidt. Monty is a senior scientist with the Natural Resource yeah, the Natural Resources Defense Council, and the San Joaquin River Restoration Project Manager. He's uh, organized a water program, and he's going to be telling us all about why this matters, and especially in California, which has been so drought-riddled or ridden for the last few years, why this particular project has so much import for the rest of the state, and indeed for the rest of the country, as we all struggle through drought uh, in the western part of the country. So welcome to the program, Monty. Thanks so much for taking the time. Tell me about the um, San Joaquin River Restoration Program. What are you doing? Okay, great. Well, thank you, Katie, for giving me this opportunity to talk about the San Joaquin River Restoration Program. Probably, um, the, uh, let me overarchingly say that the, the San Joaquin River Restoration Program is is arguably one of the largest river restoration and salmon restoration projects in the nation. Mm -hmm. And it involves uh, three federal agencies and two state agencies, as well as quite a a wide range of stakeholders, Mm -hmm. including the fishing community, the environmental community, as well as uh, local farmers and water districts and cities and towns along the San Joaquin River. Yeah. This and, is very big. and it might and it might be helpful. You, you know, many of your your listeners may not know where the San Joaquin River is in California, and, mm-hmm. and so maybe it might be helpful to describe that. But um, if you you know if you if you have picture in your mind the you know the state of California, and there's that there's that sort of nebulous area that's in the middle of the state that that is kind of a big flat area that's known as the Central Valley of of, of California, mm-hmm. and. The northern part of that valley is drained by what's called the Sacramento River. It's the largest river in the state. And then the, the lower half is actually drained by the San Joaquin River, and it's the second largest river in the state. Wow. The part of the river that we're focused on 
is, is uh, the lowest part of the river. It's about 150 miles long, and um, it historically, this part of the river used to be, you know, a, a, you know pre-human, so to speak, um, was, you know, an incredible vast um, river network of wetlands as well as, as beautiful flowing rivers coming out of the High Sierra Mountains mm-hmm. and used to be home to the second largest salmon run in the state of California. But in the 1940s, um, as part of a sort of a wave of dam building that occurred throughout the West to, in essence, kind of harness rivers and divert water to support agriculture and, to, and emerging cities, mm-hmm. there was a very large dam that was built on the San Joaquin River, which um, unlike most of the, almost all other major dams in the West, this dam ended up diverting all the water, leaving nothing for the river downstream, and that ended up wow. drying up over 60 miles of the river and wiping out all the salmon that, that used to uh, come from the river. And so the San Joaquin River Restoration Program is actually the, the result of a lawsuit that NRDC filed uh, back in 1988 representing a bunch of fishing and conservation groups. Uh-huh. And eventually, in 2006, we settled the case with the federal government as well as the, the water agencies that derive water from the San Joaquin and basically decided that it was time to you know, put down the lawsuit and begin doing things. And we really focused on uh, both restoring the river adding water back to the river, doing things to restore the salmon, but also to figure out ways that we can manage water as best we can so that the agricultural economy in the region continues to be as vibrant as it is today. Yeah, because the San Joaquin Valley is kind of the breadbasket of uh, California, isn't it? And, and by extension of the United States. I mean, yeah. that's where I think of like, you know, they grow all the artichokes and all the garlic and all the. I mean, there's just a lot, a lot of crops that are, in, you know, specific to that area that probably wouldn't grow anywhere else in this country. So obviously more important than other places where you can swap out crops for different crops, right? You bet. Well, they, they grow like eight, about 80 different varieties of, of fruits and vegetables and, and fiber uh-huh. is sort of the way we look at it, um, uh-huh. including cotton. Um, and, but the majority of what is grown are, is fruit, and a lot of that is um, are, you know, tree crops. Uh, right. And, and Do you have a lot of almonds like growing there? You bet. Lots of almonds, pistachios. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of raisin grapes right. uh, are grown in the area. We're going to get to that in a minute. But um, I wanted to um, just go back for a second to talk about your the lawsuit that you referred to. And that there was a lot of conflict between the conservation and fishing groups versus the Freant Water Authority, which in turn represents about 15,000 of the local farmers. So in essence, what's happening here is, I mean, I think if, are we looking at sort of a Chinatown situation? Do you remember that movie Chinatown? Oh, yeah. Okay, so is that what we're kind of talking about? Like all the dam building and all the stuff that went on, diverted water away from, say, one area and into a city or a town. And a lot of the towns downstream from where you've been working are using the water from the San Joaquin Valley for their drinking water, correct? Um, not as much. I mean, no? the, okay. the San Joaquin. Well, the San Joaquin. Um, the water that um, that was diverted went uh, has gone has gone to a tremendously large area. Uh, mm-hmm. the, some of the water from the river is actually transferred by canals over 150 miles away. Incredible. Uh, so it is that is quite an incredible distance that would span you know several states 
in some ways in, in, on the East Coast. Yeah. And, um, and, and, then, uh, and then also to the north by another 60, 70 miles. So combined, mm-hmm. it is quite a large region. It has gone um, mostly to agriculture. It's, it's not much of it is going to, um, to cities and, um, and towns. So it's really about the farmers who want to continue to grow whatever crops they grow, most of which, especially some... I mean, almond trees, for instance, are coming under a lot of fire right now because they're a permanent crop. It's not something you can change at will the way you can you know, change to a less water-intensive crop if you need to in uh, times of drought. Almond trees always need the same amount of water, correct? So if that's your primary piece of agriculture there and you have a water supply shortage, um, then clearly there's going to be a lot of pushback from the um, from the farming community about how much water they're able to get. And they have to pay for water, right? Aren't they paying extra pre- high premium rates for water at this point? Well, um, there's, there's a lot of, of different them? parts in there. I know, it's such a, it's, the, the, it's, it's, it's very intertwined. It's very, it's very um, you know, it's, it's uh, very typical to, to cover a lot of different areas. Um, you know, the, um, going maybe first to, to sort of, you know, um, the, you know, what the water is going toward is mostly toward agriculture. Mm-hmm. And the, the restoration program is not, you know, we, when we say restoration, maybe it's worth saying, you know, there's a lot of different ideas of what that means. Are we trying to restore the river back to, to its pre-human condition? The answer is no. no. And as a matter right. of fact, what we're looking at is taking about 18% of its historic flows and restoring the river with that little of water, making basically the rest of that water, the other 82%, is available to continue to be used as it has been. And so we can mm-hmm. do that only because, one, we're not, we're not trying to restore vast wetlands. We cannot, we cannot right. do that because the land is now in agriculture, we don't have, and we don't have enough water. And it's, and it's sort of a balance of societal interest that we aren't trying to turn back the clock all the way. Mm-hmm. But we can, with that much water, restore a living river with salmon that is um, it's vibrant and it's part of the local communities that, in a way that it has not been. It's been missing for many years. And, it'll, and it will improve water quality um, downstream, which, while the majority of that water um, currently goes to agriculture, when we restore the full flows to the river, that water will actually make it all the way downstream to a part of California that's um, called the San Francisco Bay Delta. It's basically where the Sacramento and the San Joaquin Rivers all join together. Uh-huh. And that's an incredibly important area for, um, for urban and industrial water for the state. And that's, that's basically, you know, two-thirds of um, all Californians get some part of their water from the Bay Delta. Jiminy, and so there's a real and important um, element here of restoring the river is going to improve water quality and therefore water supplies mm-hmm. for a lot of folks. But, it's, but the Bay Delta is a, very, is a very big system. There's a lot of parts that contribute to it. So it's not, it's not solely going to fix many of the problems that exist there, but it's, it's a part of a, a suite of solutions. Right. And part of those solutions are is the restoration of salmon to to the the river. And so you um, I think it was John Sutton who took a ride down the San Joaquin uh, about what did he do about 500 miles altogether? Was that what I read? And you traveled some of that way with him. This is John Sutton from CNN. And um, what was the purpose of his trip and what what did you see with him that that 
sort of made you believe even more firmly in your project or what did you see that you needed to tweak or do more of or less of or whatever? Well, you know, I've worked on the San Joaquin Restoration Program now for 14 years uh, for NRDC. And going down the river with John, John is an opinion writer for CNN. Uh He has done a number of different stories where he has has gone to where the story is located and met people Uh as many days, as opposed to a lot of stories are, you know, can, you know, a couple interviews over the telephone, read some research and, and write a story. He... Um, has has a history of of doing much longer feature length stories where he really gets I think down into the issue and and I think more importantly meets all the different people and interests that are along the way and that's I think has been it, to me was very inspiring because mm-hmm. there if you read his his um, his Twitter posts and his and his um, pieces that he has written through CNN. You know, you, he met all sorts of interesting people. From, you know, people who were um, got married on the shores of the San Joaquin, or, or a baptism that took place in the river. Right. But he also met, um, you know, families that are just along the river that are just. Uh, it, the Central Valley of, of California is very, very hot in the summertime. Yeah. And so, um, a river is a free place to cool off, and it, it, there's a lot of low-income communities in in yeah. that region, and so. You know, a free public resource like that means a lot to um, to some folks. And he also met farmers who are struggling deeply during this drought, who are having to lay off farm workers, um, who are having to fallow fields. Some folks, as you as you kind of touched on earlier, who yeah. have permanent crops, they're needing to make you know pretty um, pretty. Imp- challenging decisions about how to manage a tree crop you know you can to some degree you can trim trees back and try to keep them alive through one dry year or you may decide if you need to as a business decision um, tear out some of what you've got because you can't you don't have enough water to keep it all alive and Mm -hmm. those are really hard decisions um, to make there's a there's a big economic impact that the drought is having on folks and so john i think john um, was able to really tell sort of the very complex story that is this river. And it really, in so many ways, you know, and, and it ends up, the river eventually ends up connecting all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And, you know, a, a salmon that comes into the San Joaquin River has passed through the Golden Gate, underneath the Golden Gate Bridge, wow. right here in San Francisco, where I am. So it, it's a it's a river that is connected to a very big piece of the state, and it's touch, it touches upon so many of the water issues that we are, we deal with, you know, particularly in droughts, but we really deal with them more and more every year. Well, because drought is becoming more and more the norm, right? I mean, your water stocks are about as low as they've ever been. In fact, I saw in the paper today there was a thing about Lake Mead in, uh, and how it's the at the lowest point in its history. I mean, that's pretty scary stuff. I've seen Lake Mead, and it wasn't, you know, I mean, it's, it's an impressive amount of water that they're missing there. So now, but explain to me, how, how does a salmon, how does a salmon run? How, do, how does replenishing those stocks that have been gone for so many decades now, how does that help to restore the river ecologically? Do they, cle- are they like filter feeders? No. <laughs> no, they're not. They're not filter feeders. But you know, salmon in many ways we are. You, you use a couple of, of analogies that folks are commonly aware of. You know, like the, the canary in the coal mine, or right. a keystone species. 
You know, in, in essence, when you have healthy salmon runs, it means you have a healthy river that supports all sorts of fish and wildlife, not just salmon. Right. I mean, salmon ecologically are, are actually extremely important to the health of a river because, you know, these little, if you think about it, they, when the, these fish, they, their life cycle is that they, they're born in the, these rivers yeah. and they travel downstream, you, you know, usually within a couple of months, mm-hmm. and they go out to the ocean as something that's about three inches long and comes back something that can be as, as big as two and a half you know, even three feet as sure. in a real extreme size. Yep. Yep. But, you know, and that represents an incredible amount of fish, if you think about it, coming back upstream. And when those fish spawn and reproduce and then the adults die mm-hmm. as part of their natural life cycle, that's an incredible amount of nutrients that's actually brought into the riverine ecosystem. And there's, there are people have actually been able to um, test for certain um, isotopes um, elements that are in fish and have been found in 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 wine in Napa or in other in trees Come in the forest above rivers because that nutrient comes back up by the only by the fish and uh-huh. then makes its way into the food web of the ecosystem of the surrounding landscape. Wow, so, that's wild. You know, you know, that's an, I know it's kind of amazing to think about, but you know probably you know more importantly to. Our, the way we use our rivers today, you know, the, a river that doesn't have enough water for salmon doesn't have enough water for, you know, for usually for drinking water quality. It's not a great yeah. place to swim. You know, you, it's not a great place for people to recreate and fish, things like that. So when we can restore a river with, you know, in this case with 18% of the water to bring back salmon runs, we're also bringing back a river that is really important to a lot of towns and communities all along its path, all the way downstream. And was salmon at one time, uh, was that a major crop? I mean, was it like, was there a fishing industry that survived on the basis of the salmon run from the San Joaquin uh, River? Or was it more like just kind of a barometer of river health? No, I mean, the, the commercial fishing industry, uh, you know, in the early 1900s was, was mm-hmm. an incredibly important economic mm-hmm. industry in California and fed right. a lot of people. And, um, and it has, uh, over the last 70 years, has been in, in severe decline as right. we have built dams all over California. We have, we have over 1,400 dams that are more than 35 feet tall. Wow. So... If you think about the num- that, what that reflects in terms of all the major rivers virtually, there's, there are just a, a handful of exceptions, but of, all our rivers in California have multiple dams that in most places keep fish from getting to their, to their native habitat. Mm-hmm. We've also diverted, you know, uh, 80% of our, of our managed water goes to agriculture and t- the other 20% goes to the environment and to people and to industry. Mm-hmm. And so we've, we've highly managed our water to the point where there's very little left in our rivers. And so the salmon have plummeted, and, and consequently our commercial and recreational fishing industries have really been hard hit, particularly in the last number of years where there have been actual closures of our commercial fishing industry where right. the, the numbers of fish are so low that 
people basically said, you know, we can't fish for these fish because if we do, we're just we're we're, we're we could be driving them into extinction. Yeah, that'll so, be the end of that stock, right? Yeah. But let me ask you this, um, Monty, what about agricultural runoff into the San Joaquin River? Because, I mean, I would have thought that that would have a tremendous impact on the health of the river, just. Um, not only in terms of your fish supply, but also in terms of drinking water and everything else. I mean, why doesn't uh, the San Joaquin suffer from the same fate as, say, the Mississippi or the Missouri rivers, which, you know, have all of this water coming in that's polluted from, uh, you know, fertilizer, pesticides, et cetera? Mm-hmm. It, it does. And, um, and, and, and it is a problem that is uh, particularly a, a, an issue further downstream mm-hmm. on the San Joaquin, unfortunately, because... You know, as, as a stream moves down, there's more and more. So you pick up of, more of it, yeah. Of runoff, yeah, it picks up more and more. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's actually a very, a, a very significant issue. And there, uh, parallel to the San Joaquin River Restoration Program, there is a, an ongoing process right now with the California State Water Resources Control Board, which, which in essence sort of governs water contracts and, and management of water resources in California. Is, is working on how to solve water quality problems that are downstream mm-hmm. by looking at how much water is being released from dams, from the major rivers that contribute to it. And, you know, the, that's a process that is, that is going to go on probably for several more years because it's a very complicated and, and, and somewhat contentious issue. But the long and short of it is, is that not enough water is being released, and, and nobody's in doubt about that. Uh-huh. And so, we, you know, ultimately, the, to get to the, to the issue of pollution in our rivers, part of that solution is that we need to, we need to not have agricultural runoff that is, that is so toxic that it, that it is a health problem. That's just a fundamental yeah. starting point. Another part of it, though, is that we need to have more water in our rivers so that there is an ability to assimilate and dilute these pollutants because sure. it's very, very hard to, you know, to have agricultural runoff water that is clean enough to drink. Yeah, so absolutely. So when you balance. say releasing water, you're talking about like releasing it from behind these dams or out of the canals that it's being diverted into and stuff. I mean, it's hard for us on the East Coast. We don't have this kind of infrastructure to manage water supplies here. So I'm having a hard time understanding almost really what what it means when you're talking about, well, we have, you know, X number of percent of this water is going towards agriculture and then the rest, and, and we need 18 more percent to, to make the river run and to make the salmon spawn. And I mean, I'm like, wait a minute, wait, but, 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 you know, there's, I mean, there's a finite amount of water, right? So where, like, where do you get it from to put it back into the river? You bet. Well, you know, part of it is understanding, I think, particularly comparing the, the, the west versus the, the east and the southeast. Mm-hmm. Um, we get all, almost all of our water here in the west, particularly the arid west, in, um, in, in a, about a four-month cycle from more or right. less, you know, December through March. Mm-hmm. And, and then the rest of the year is, can, can be extremely dry. In this case, very, very dry. Yeah. And so... Our water resources really stem from having to grab that water when it falls and either capture, it's either captured in, it's captured in one of three places. It's either captured behind a dam mm-hmm. or it falls as snow in the high mountains and then that snow melts later and then that water comes downstream or into the dams in the, the late spring and summer or you have water that, 
that is that falls upon the landscape and filters into the ground and becomes groundwater. Right. So we, when it comes to, to water, it, particularly in California, it, it's all coming from a, from one of uh, those managed sources for the I most see. part. And so, you know, when I say release water to the river, it, it is basically we. It means releasing it from behind a dam, and it's and it's you could think of it just like a bank account. There's only a certain amount mm-hmm. coming in. You can only spend the water that you, you know the water that you got. You can't make water behind a dam, right? And um, and so it's a very it's very carefully budgeted and managed. Yeah, and and ever so more carefully as time goes by. Um, we're going to take a short break now, Monty. But stay, uh, listeners, stay with us. And Monty, we'll be right back with you. We're just going to do a quick sponsor drop, and then we'll be right back to talk more about the San Joaquin River and restoration. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. I love that ad. (laughs) This is What Doesn't Kill You on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And with me on the line is Monty Schmidt from the Natural Resources Defense Council. He is in charge of um, uh, directing the uh, San Joaquin River Restoration Project out in California. And I'm I'm hoping, and we're going to talk about this in a few minutes, um, but I'm hoping that you're going to tell us that what you're doing there is, is going to be applicable to other rivers across the nation. But I want to go back for a second to the whole salmon thing, because um, one of the things that I read when I was preparing for this interview was, um, I think it was an article in On Earth, the the, uh, Natural Resources Defense Council publication um, by Barry Yeoman, and he was talking about um, the salmon and that even in some cases, you you guys would be picking up and moving salmon by hand because, or, you know, however you do it, um, because there would be places in the river that were too dry to support the movement of the salmon, but you still wanted to keep them flowing in the river and heading up or downstream, depending on which direction they're going in at that particular moment. Is that, I mean, do I, did I understand that correctly? And how would you do that? And, and why is that efficient? Yeah, it, the, the answer is yes. We, it, it, right now, part of this is understanding that the San Joaquin River is, you know, arguably one of the most, um, degraded large rivers in in the in the country. Mm-hmm. It's also, I think, one of the hardest working because of how much water is diverted and for various purposes and right. trying to make all those those purposes fit together. So it's it has you know it it has stretches of the river that were bone dry for more for better part of sixty years. Wow. And so as we as we are restoring the river, we are, there are a lot of things that we need to do to. To not only restore the habitat and release water in the river, but also protect the ongoing interest in managing the river's infrastructure for water supply for agriculture. Right. Basically, when we when we settled our case in 2006, and the agreement that we were able to reach was was based on on uh, reaching an understanding with the agricultural interests that that the program would be implemented in a way that continued to support 
their agricultural uses. Yeah. But, and, and so an example of that is there are, there are what are called diversion dams that are on the San Joaquin River. They're not very high. They're only like 14, 15 feet. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a, that's a barrier to a salmon oh, yeah. you know, trying to get upstream. And so what we are, we've already begun doing is designing projects to build um, channels that will go around these diversion dams or build what are called fish ladders, which is mm-hmm. kind of like a stair step thing, which, which are, these are not, these, these are things that are done all that over the place. That is not new technology, no, right. No, not new, new technology, but, but it's going to take time for us to build those things. Yeah. So yeah. what we basically said is, all right, our goal, our long-term goal is a naturally reproducing and self-sustaining fishery, which means the fish are, never need to be touched. They can make their way right. upstream, spawn. The juveniles can come out. They do that all on their own. And, we, and, and not needing a hatchery that, that continues to supplement the population in order right. to keep it going. Because that's what's to, happening now. I mean, we should point that out, that you're not just getting wild salmon from, the, from this ocean and telling them, okay, now you're going to go up the San Joaquin River. You know, you're, you have hatcheries and you are, you are introducing fish from fish farms, essentially, from fish hatcheries. Yeah, not from yeah. fish farms, but from no, from, uh, from from fish hatcheries, which yeah. you know again are also very common, um, unfortunately, in uh, many rivers in California and and mm-hmm. and elsewhere in Oregon and Washington and, and beyond. Um, and it's and unfortunately, we use hatcheries as a mechanism by which we compensate for the poor habitat that has been created. Right. But so on the San Joaquin, our goal is to actually go to the point where we don't even need a hatchery to keep things going. But that's going to take time. It, it took, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're, it was 60 years of degrading the river, and we're right. seven years into implementing the restoration program. It's going to take us a little bit of time to, to make, to, to build the fish ladders and to, and to build um, the, the pathways around these diversion dams, you know, to keep the agricultural productivity and water supply to the ag will continue, and and um, and in time, not very not very long in in many years. I mean, I think we're looking at probably, you know, five to ten years before we no longer need to touch the salmon at all, and they'll be able to make it up and down on their own. That's impressive. And so, in the meantime, we we are being we have to be really creative in how we get things done because. We're trying to, you know, do things with 18% of the water, not 100%, and, right. and balance a lot of different interests. Well, uh, and that leads me to sort of the, the larger questions, and I'd sort of like to use the rest of this time to talk about the bigger questions, because um, one of the quotes that really struck me was that um, uh, the water has transformed a desert once considered uninhabitable into the nation's top fruit and vegetable growing region. That's a quote from, I don't know, one of the pieces I read on um, on your website. And do you think that, I mean, in the face of what will probably be a continuing um, scarce, fairly scarce water supply in the in the in the west and the southwest, do you think that maintaining that land as arable is really a viable? Um, project to, uh, you know, continue to invest in? Or should farmers and should the federal government or should the state government start looking for either different types of crops to grow in more arid landscapes or some other way of, you know, moving farmers 
and moving those crops northward where there's more rainfall? I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure what the answer is, but I, it just seems to me that, you know, having created a, a wonderland of fruits and vegetables in a desert, um, I think, you know, Mother Nature seems fairly intent on bringing it back to a desert. And so what do you think will be this, the future of something like the San Joaquin River and your restoration project, given that there will be probably less and less rainfall in the coming years? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that the answer is that, yes, there is enough water right now for, to support all the uses. Mm-hmm. I think the, the real question becomes how efficient we are with our water and how right. do we manage um, extreme dry years like this. So when you know when it when when it's above average and wet um, years or even you know flood years, you know pro- water's not a problem. It's the real question becomes how do you manage these really dry times? Yeah. And so you know when when we go through drought uh, times like this, there are various things that we can do to to mitigate the impacts. And and so the viability of of, of frankly, I think agricultural production. As well as cities that are, you know, that yeah. are finally saying, "Wow, we we if it doesn't rain, we don't have enough water, municipal water supply," and and that that the same goes for for industry. So we have to do a much better job at how we manage our limited resource and be prepared for droughts and have better adaptation measures. And so mm-hmm. this is where you know you, earlier in the call you you mentioned. Uh, one of the issues that's that's a very big problem, which is that a lot of agriculture, particularly in the San Joaquin Valley, um, involves trees, tree crops, not yeah. fruit. And so there is, unlike if you're growing, say, cotton, if you go through an extreme, you're coming into a very, very dry year, you can choose not to plant that cotton. Now, there's an economic right. impact of, of foregoing that, but at least there's an ability to, to in essence, follow that field for a year. Right. Whereas if you have 10-year-old um, almond trees, you already have an investment of those 10 years to get to that point, and then your real value on that crop is the next 10, maybe 20 years of high production from that crop. Right. And so if you lose those trees at that point because you don't have enough water, you're really in trouble. So you're going you're gonna to do everything you can to keep those trees alive. That, that, but we talk about that as, as sort of a hardening of demand. There's not a lot mm-hmm. of flexibility in the system when you go into these drought years to be able to reduce your, your regional water demand. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think in terms of the agricultural community, which I'm not an expert about agricultural economics, mm-hmm. but I'd be surprised to, if this wasn't true to say that after this year and really the, the last three years that we've had that have been very dry, that a lot of farmers aren't looking at, you know, how much do you want to put all your eggs in one basket? Do you want to diversify and have... right? You know, some things in permanent crops and some things that you can fallow so that there's a ba- you, have a, you have sort of a, a, an adaptation strategy personally. Right. Um, I think also, you know, we, we need to do a lot more to bank our groundwater. So for a lot of folks who may not understand the idea, it's basically saying, you know, we have these, these underground reservoirs that we think of as groundwater where... If in wet years or in years that are, you know, on the wetter side of things, we can be putting water into the ground. We can take that water out in dry years. But what we haven't been, we've been doing is we're, we're pumping like crazy this year particularly. 
we're taking water out of the ground, but we haven't been managing it as an as a savings account. We've well, my understanding it. is there's no regulation for people drilling wells. That there are no there are no really strong regulations that prevent people from drilling wells more or less at will. Isn't that so? At least up in the northern part of your state. Yes, it, I've I heard mean, a lot about the, that. Yeah, the long story short is that is that essentially groundwater is unmanaged, and mm-hmm. so it, we we've been using it more as our primary account supply, so right? Using the banking analogy as opposed to a savings account for bad times. Right. And so consequently, we we've we've came into this drought year already with groundwater levels dropping dramatically, and now we're rating that account. Yeah. Um, and and I think that it, it is. It's going to be disturbing and frightening to see at the end of this this summer um, where our groundwater levels are at and the impacts that that's going to have, not only you know in the near term but in the long term. Sure, because I imagine that as water supplies dwindle, all sorts of other uh, you know like dominoes things start just falling over, and then how do you get that back? Especially if you don't have you know ample water coming back pretty quickly, which. As I've said now about 25 times, I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> it's just, I mean, I really, honestly, I'm, I'm old enough to feel like this is, we're really at the beginning of the apocalypse. But anyway, I can tell that you are not so um, uh, pessimistic as I am. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the restoration of, of jobs that restoring the river is going to, I mean, there's going to be, it, there was uh Part of your press release said that the restoration of the vibrant San Joaquin River will generate something like 11,000 new jobs and create new opportunities for recreation and tourism. How is how do you quantify that, and how do you I mean how do you decide that it's going to be 11,000 new jobs? Mm-hmm. What, well, like what kind uh, of jobs, it, for instance? Th- those numbers come from a uh, from a report that was done by a UC um, University of California um, economist. Uh huh. And so um, it's I, I, it's uh, not my area of expertise. Right, understood. But but where that comes from, you know, where those numbers are derived from, is from looking at the all the projects that need to be constructed as part of the restoration program. Uh-huh. There there are flood protection projects. There are water supply projects. There's habitat restoration. Those all cost money, and you know projects. And money equal jobs because it takes somebody to build these things. Right. And then there's also um, the the economist also looked at, you know, as the river changes and it becomes a, a, a vibrant resource again for towns and communities along the way. You know, how does that how does that affect the value of of of, of homes and communities along the way? Yeah. What are the tourism opportunities, the the recreational fishing opportunities, and so forth. And so that's where, you know, there's, there's a lot of primary and secondary benefits of a living river. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, I think that, you know, a lot of times focus, people can focus on, you know, is it, oh, it's fish versus farmers, and it's, and it, which is such a black and white um, story that is in, that's entirely not true. This is, I mean, it's the second largest river in our state. It, 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 it's valuable to all Californians. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it really one of these things where... You know, how do we do these things in a balanced way that we can support all of the needs and beneficiaries? Water supply for, you know, for two-thirds of the entire state, you know. Yeah, it's a staggering number. I mean, I I had no idea. I didn't realize that it was supplying two-thirds of the state with their water. 
Um, I, I wanted to go back to what you said a second ago because I realized I had a question about this. Was the, um, you know, when you talked about the underwater banking or groundwater banking projects, like when you do that, what are some of those? Like, what does that look like? And also, what are some of the other water reclamation uh, projects that you can, uh, you know, sort of include in this overall um, effort to restore this this particular river and one that we could and then. By extrapolation, what are those projects that could be used to restore rivers across the country? Because, I mean, obviously we're all, uh, to some extent, being affected by these water conditions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, um, boy, there's a lot of different um, opportunities there, but maybe some ones that are, that are um, the biggest are, first would be groundwater. So how mm-hmm. does that work? Um, you, you know, you can recharge groundwater right near a river, or you can also recharge groundwater you know, some distance away. And, and so, you know, for, for how to recharge our groundwater near our rivers, probably one of the best things that we can do is, is reconnect what we call our floodplains with our rivers. And these are, floodplains are those areas that are right next to the river that during the normal course of a, of the, the, a river's peak and flow, you know, so usually that's right. in the springtime for us here, you know, those are the, the areas that would have naturally, you know, every year or every other year would have been covered with water. Mm-hmm. That water percolates down into the ground and it, and it recharges the groundwater bank. Um, so reconnecting, you know, right now we have mostly put levees right up along the edges of our rivers because we wanted to farm or put cities right up to the edges of our rivers. Yes. Lots of problems with that from a, from a public safety standpoint and... And, and because floods happen just like droughts do. And sure. so there's problems with that as a land use management strategy, but it's also been a really bad strategy from a water supply perspective because we've, we've reduced the amount of groundwater infiltration, recharging that mm-hmm. bank account. Um, so the, the other opportunity is to, to, is to do groundwater banking away from the river, and that's where you have, you, you'll have canals um, and diversion points that allow you to move that water, particularly in wet years when you've got a surplus, and move it out onto a field, and you basically pond that water up, and it just slowly drops into the ground. Uh-huh. But some other opportunities, though, for, for how to improve how we manage our water um, is a lot of times uh, it's very hard to move water around to where the need is. So you might have a water district that is that has a surplus of, of a little bit of water, 100 miles from a, a water district that needs water. Right. And so part of what we're doing as part of our restoration program is we're developing um, the ability to increase the ability to transfer water so that we're, we're moving it around effectively. And, and to some degree, we're letting the market place uh, dictate how some of the water is used. So if a farmer could say, well, you know, I can, I can either use this to grow a low-value crop and make a little bit of money, or I can sell it to somebody else who can use that on a high-value crop, it, it sort of benefits both farmers. The, the key is connecting the dots between the two. Right. And so we're also looking at programs for how to increase the ability to transfer and move water around and use it in the highest and best places. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm still, I'm lingering on the thought of buying water, buying and selling water and having mm-hmm. water become more of a commodity than it is and, and what that's going to, how that will play out. I mean, because as I, you know, from, 
from my vantage point of being, you know, paranoid and kind of a communist. <laughs> I don't really like the idea of like large industrial, you know, agricultural interests controlling water supplies, which I know is already happening. I know that, you know, for instance, Warren Buffett has bought, you know, uh, springs and 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 uh, aquifers in in the Midwest and the Mid Plains states. I know that uh, other companies are also investing in water, um, only to be, you know, wielded as a power when water becomes so scarce that people are willing to pay huge amounts of money for it. So I find that all very alarming and disturbing. I mean, you talk about it's scary to see what the groundwater depletion is going to be at the end of the summer. But I think it's even scarier to think of somebody like PepsiCo deciding whether or not a city is going to get water, right? (laughs) You know, are we going to be able to buy? It's like what's happening in Detroit right now, right? Have you been following that? I have not, but I, you know, I think going to your overarching point, which is, are we really managing our water the way we, uh, the, the way it makes in the sense national today? best interest, First, right? Yeah, I mean, we've a lot of a lot of how water is managed in California and throughout the United States, you know, was set, you know, fifty, a hundred, years ago, fifty years mm-hmm. ago, and our land, our, our country has changed. Our need yeah. for water has changed. Mm-hmm. The, the uses for water has has changed, and. And I think that that is a, a real problem, is needing to figure out how do we make sure that we are protecting the highest and best uses of water. And, and pricing on water in California is, is absolutely crazy. There are some folks who pay, who pay almost nothing for their water. There's, there are a lot of water districts that pay below what it actually costs to deliver it to them. So, wow. in essence... The, the the federal government and the state government are subsidizing the cost of the water to to some of the water users and 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 sometimes those folks turn around and sell it and make a lot of money yeah so it's it, I, I you know these are things that that I think inherently when when we think about it we think that's not adhering to the principles of economics that's we're creating these these crazy situations where where someone can use this highly valuable resource that is water and use it to grow a really low-value crop while cities elsewhere are really struggling to figure out how they're going to, you know, provide their water supply. Sure. And so it creates these, the, you know, in this day and age, there today, there are water districts that are paying, you know, 7 or $15 per acre foot of water. That's a unit of measurement that's, mm-hmm. you can think of one acre of land, one foot deep. That's a, an right. acre foot. Um, there are some that are paying, you know, seven to fifteen dollars for, but on the on the spot market, there are people who are paying over two thousand dollars. Oh my so gosh! So when you have that kind of a of a range in in value, um, something is deeply out of balance. Yes. Well, thank goodness we have the Natural Resources Defense Council that's working hard to regulate some, or not regulate, but at least to address some of these problems. Um, sadly, Monty, we are out of time because we didn't get a chance to talk about um, sort of the, the challenges between conservation and agriculture, which I think are you know pretty much endemic to any, um, any discussion around water. Uh, but we're going to have to say goodbye. So do you want to give us a sense of where people can learn more about this issue and what you're doing? What's your website? You, you, can, you, you can go to um, NRDC's website, obviously, and to our water program, and there's a lot of information there about not only the restoration program, but also a lot of the other work that we do on water quality and water efficiency. Um, and so I, that would be, of course, the first place I would look. Yeah. Um, there is also uh, uh, the, 
the San Joaquin River Restoration Program as a website that also has a lot of information. So I, I, I deeply appreciate the opportunity. It really, the San Joaquin is in many ways touches on so many important water issues for it California does. and the nation. So, for the whole nation, um, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we, I'm hoping that you'll come back and we can discuss this uh, more as you advance along the course of your project. I'll be interested in following up with you, and I thank you so much for your time today. And thanks to my sponsor, Kane Wineries, and thank you to my engineer. We'll see you next week. Paul Greenberg will be joining me to talk about American fish. So we'll see you next week with that show. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.